So hello everyone, welcome to uh, another of the Road Centre for International Economics and Finance uh, speaker series uh, of this semester. It's my great pleasure to welcome Quince Laborian, who's an Associate Professor of History at Wellesley, just up the road, who has written this wonderful book, uh, Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Um, a couple of notes from me by way of introduction, if you haven't had a chance to read the book yet. Um, some odd notes. Number one, there's only two academic books I've ever listened to on audiobook. This is the second one. And the first one was, believe it or not, Thomas Piketty. Now, Thomas, Thomas Piketty takes 26 hours. And it's actually kind of necessary to do Thomas Piketty as an audiobook because it's so dense. And what happens with Piketty is everybody starts at chapter five because that's when the stats on inequality start. And you actually don't read chapter two, which is the core of the entire book. So it was worth it to actually rediscover that. With this one, you have a really good person actually doing the reading, number one. And it's actually almost better as an audio book because it comes alive as intellectual biography. That this is about real people who had real lives and real desires and real battles and real afflictions of the mind and of the body and, and a project. And it really comes alive. So I, I recommend it as like, really, it's a great book to read. It's actually even a, a slightly better book to listen to. Um, second thing is in terms of setting it up, the, the word neoliberalism has become, uh, according to a speaker who will be here soon and many others, Danny Roderick, a kind of empty signifier. It says everything and it says nothing at the same time. And, you know, we could probably debate that endlessly as well as the meaning of what it is, etc. I think one of the real contributions of this book is to actually just expand what that means, but give it content at the same time. There's a kind of uh, 1945 uh, zero hour thing that happens in a lot of the academy, whereby whatever there was was then blown up, destroyed and lost was then reconfigured and there are lineages and there's lineages where if you're on the Keynesian side it comes basically down trickling down this hill and if you were on the sort of the liberal side then it comes down this hill and it usually the hill's called Mont Perlin and it, and it just flows from there and what the book shows is how what an incredibly partial vision that is that in fact if you want to understand liberalism as a whole in all of its voices you really have to grapple with the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which you wonderfully called post-Habsburg stress disorder. Uh, and the imaginary of that and what was lost. And then, of course, the trauma of the interwar period. And what becomes fascinating is the, the people that we know as Montperlin and uh, uh, the Lippmann uh, colloquium that led to that, in fact, had these wonderful varied careers long before they ever became the people that we think we know, and also had protege that then went off and did things whose names we know, but we would never associate with them. And he ties it all together in this wonderful book. So it's a great pleasure to have you here, and it was an even greater pleasure to read the book. Yeah, I haven't listened to the book myself. The only thing I know about it is the guy who read it also read The Bonfire of the Vanities, which was, to me, perfect. Um, okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and give about a 15-minute, 20-minute talk, and then Mark and I are going to have a conversation. And then you get to play the... the and, yeah, and then we'll, all, we'll bring it all together. If I had to give this book an origin point, it would be almost 20 years ago in the 1999 protests against the World Trade Organization in Seattle. For people who don't know much about it, a famous coalition of, quote, teamsters and turtles, meaning environmentalists along with labor unions, students, anarchists, old hippies, and assorted others, 
shut down the ministerial meeting of the WTO, and in some of the ways I describe in the end of the book, shook the organization to its core. I was a junior in college in Portland at the time, a few hours south of Seattle, and I didn't go. I remember watching the protests on our small box TV with a coat hanger stuck in the back with a sinking feeling of, oh no, a world historical event is taking place and I missed it to watch some Lars von Trier movies on VHS. My classmates felt activated, but I myself felt immobilized. The 90s were a kind of a weird time to come of age. Middle class North American white kids like me were both profiting entirely from everything that went under the decades buzzword of globalization but also had this sense that it was something ominous and something almost verging on evil. The world economy felt like the nothing from my favorite childhood film, The NeverEnding Story, an anonymous, faceless force that seemed to swallow everything in its path and extinguish particularity. Who would defend such a thing? The term that arose at that time to describe the philosophy of people who were defending it was neoliberalism. But what did these neoliberals want? I asked myself then and kept asking myself. There's a few obvious answers. The first is to suggest that the big nothing was actually the big everything, that it was lifting the aggregate wealth and productivity of humanity as a whole, the number of people living on a dollar a day was dropping from year to year, and even if inequality was also growing and ecological problems were not going anywhere, then the rising tide, anyway, globally speaking, was lifting all ships. The second explanation was that this globalization made a small number of people very, very wealthy, and it was in the interest of those people to promote a self-serving ideology using their substantial means by funding think tanks, academic departments, lobbying Congress, and fighting what the Heritage Foundation itself calls the war of ideas. And neoliberalism in that understanding would be simple restoration of class power after the odd anomalous interval of the mid-century welfare state. There's truth, I think, to both of these explanations. But in my book, I took another approach. What I found in the book is that we actually can't understand the inner logic of something like the WTO without considering the whole history of the 20th century. What I also discovered is that some of the members of the neoliberal movement itself, self-described from the 1930s onward, including Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and others, actually didn't use either of the two explanations I just offered. They actually didn't say that economic growth excuses everything. One of the weird things about Hayek in particular is that he doesn't actually believe in measuring aggregates like GDP, i.e. the things that we need to even say that growth is happening at all. What I found is that neoliberalism is actually a philosophy less of economics and more a doctrine of ordering, of creating the institutions that provide for the reproduction of the totality. At the core of the strain I describe in the book is not the idea that we can quantify, count, price, buy and sell every last aspect of human existence. And here it gets quite mystical. What were they after? The Austrian-German schools of neoliberals, in fact, believed in a kind of invisible world economy that cannot be captured in numbers and figures and always eludes human comprehension. After all, if you can see something, you can plan it. Because of the very limits to human knowledge, we have to default to ironclad rules and try not to pursue something as radical as social justice, redistribution or collective transformation. As I write in the book, one can approach Hayek's idea of the system by imagining a visit to the seashore. Waiting in the shallow water, you may see a school of minnows approaching you, traveling in a rough and shifting orb. The school is not regimented into even lines, but it does cohere as a basic shape. As you approach, the orb dissipates and then reassembles before moving in another direction. Order for Hayek must be as unplanned and spontaneous as the movement of a school of fish in water. 
So the goal is not one of raising the standard of living per se, let alone the abstract indicator of growth, but rather one of systemic interdependence that would always entail some level of economic inequality. Hayek, in particular, called social justice a, quote, mirage that we only pursue because we are literally hardwired from our days in savannah and haven't quite shaken the idea that we can share things out in the tribe. In a globalized world, according to Hayek, we have to give ourselves over to the forces of the market, or the whole thing will stop working, and literally most of us will die. What way of being in the world does this then imply? In an evocative analogy from his book on psychology from 1952, Hayek was first drawn to psychology, Hayek offers up the metaphor of the leaf, which, quote, avoids being torn to shreds by a high wind by taking up a position of least resistance. What we call understanding, he wrote, is in the last resort simply man's capacity to respond to his environment with a pattern of actions that helps him to persist. The system survives and order results, in other words, through the reflexive efforts of individuals to reproduce both themselves and thereby reproducing the totality as such. This is quite a different version of neoliberal thought than the one we usually have, premised on the abstract of idea of individual liberty or freedom to choose. Here, one is free to choose, but only with a rather limited range of options left after one has responded to the global forces of the market. My argument, then, in the book is that neoliberal globalism can be thought of on its own terms as a kind of negative theology. It contends that the world economy is sublime and ineffable, with only a small number of people having a special insight and ability to craft institutions that will, as I put it, encase the sublime world economy. To me, this metaphor of encasement makes much more sense than the usual idea of markets being set free, liberated, or unfettered. How could it be, after all, that in an era of proliferating third-party arbitration courts, international investment law, trade treaties, and regulations that we talk about unfettered markets? One of the big goals of my book, actually, is to show neoliberalism as one form of regulation among others, rather than the big other of regulation as such, the way it's sometimes described. Because despite these rather abstract metaphors that I've just introduced, the book is actually about a series of concrete institutions self-consciously designed to withstand threats to the world economy. The epigraph to the book comes from German neoliberal Wilhelm Rupke, quote, a nation may beget its own barbarian invaders. The story that we see in the book from the 1920s to the 90s is that neoliberals saw these threat, this threat of barbarians coming both from within and without and helped to redesign the state and superstate institutions to defend against them. From within, the threat was most of all from an organized working class. Neoliberals saw trade and labor unions as monopolies of a special kind, monopolizing human labor. If there wasn't a free and fluid supply of this input, then the entire clockwork of the economy would seize up and smash. I describe in my first chapter how Austrian neoliberal Ludwig von Mises was present in Vienna in 1927 for a workers' uprising, in which, after an adverse court ruling, workers marched on parliament and set the palace of justice on fire. I just want to read a bit from there to give you a sense of how the book sounds. At 8 a.m., the electric workers stopped the streetcars, bringing the circulation of labor through the city to a halt and signaling the call to a general strike. Workers marched to the parliament on the far side of the Ringstrasse from the Chamber of Commerce where Mises and Hayek both worked. 
The Palace of Justice became the target of their anger at the court's verdict, and part of the storm crowded the crowd stormed the building and set it on fire, while others blocked fire trucks, cut hoses, and opened up other hydrants to reduce water pressure, defiantly impeding the city's functions. The authorities felt pushed to opt for a radical solution, and the police chief received emergency powers, suspended the rule of law, and gave the order to fire on the demonstrators. Police killed protesters with rifles in the center of the city and then drove out to the workers' housing estates and in the suburbs and killed more. After three days, 89 people were dead and over 1,000 injured. The workers' movement was permanently crippled. The Social Democratic Party was unable to use the threat of mass mobilization effectively again. And perhaps most damagingly, the day had shown that even the putatively socialist members of the police would not hesitate to fire on fellow workers. The July 15, 1927 uprising was the deepest crisis in Vienna before the Civil War of 1934. The sight of the Palace of Justice in flames shook the author and cultural critic Elias Canetti deeply, leading him to devote his life's work to understanding the relationship between crowds and power. For Mises, the event was not a trauma, but a great relief. He was in Vienna at the time when he wrote to a friend, quote, Friday's putsch has cleansed the atmosphere like a thunderstorm. The Social Democratic Party has used all means of power and yet lost the game. The street, fighter ended, street fight ended in complete victory of the police. All troops are loyal to the government. As his biographer described, Mises was, quote, surprised and delighted by the failure of the general strike. It appeared that he accepted lightly the means used in its suppression, which delivered a deep blow to many at the time. The right to kill with impunity under emergency powers met with Mises' approval. I describe in the book how Mises was part of a three-person economic commission that proposed a, quote, anti-terror law to be used against striking workers. The argument there was that interwar Austria would be beaten by foreign competitors if they granted higher wages. As I write, quote, the rhetorical weapon of invoking the world economy was a bludgeon used to beat back social policy gains of worker insurance, severance pay, and unemployment. The problem of worker demands recurs through the book, but the more uh, the newer contribution is the one contained in the subtitle of the book, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. What I explain there is in thinking about the period of decolonization is how we can think of the WTO as the latest in a long series of institutional fixes proposed for the problem of emergent nationalism and what neoliberals saw as the confusion between sovereignty or ruling a country and ownership or owning the property within it. I show how the purely rhetorical demands in the United Nations by African, Asian, and Latin American countries for things like permanent sovereignty over natural, national resources, i.e. the right to nationalize foreign-owned enterprises, were actually existentially frightening to global business people. They drafted in neoliberal intellectuals to do things like craft agreements that gave foreign countries in the 70s, that gave foreign corporations more rights than domestic actors, what I call Xenos rights, and tried to figure out how to lock in what they themselves called the human right of capital flight into binding international codes. The new international economic order written and passed by a coalition of global south countries in the 1970s became an especially grave threat. And I show how we can see the reform of the GATT into the WTO by the 90s as largely a response to the fear of a planned and equal planet that many saw in the NIEO. The culmination of all of these processes I described by the 90s is a world economy that is less like a laissez-faire marketplace and more like a fortress, as ever more of the world's resources and ideas are regulated through transnational legal instruments. The book acts as a kind of a field guide to these institutions and in the process hopefully recasts the 20th century that produced them. 
What I found, in other words, by the end of writing this book is that the world economy wasn't a nothing, nor was it a sublime force beyond our comprehension. The title of the book's chapters offer a gallery of the different ways of conceiving the world economy that I follow. I found that it was a world of walls, a world of numbers, a world of federations, a world of races, a world of constitutions, and finally a world of signals. What this results is what led me to the project in the first place, the vision in 1999 of the world of people without a people. Perhaps the lasting image of globalization that the book leaves is that world capitalism has produced a doubled world, a world of imperium, or the world of nation states, and a world of dominium, or the world of property. The best way to understand neoliberal globalism as a project is that it sees its task as the never-ending maintenance of this division. The neoliberal insight of the 1930s was that the market would not take care of itself, and that what Wilhelm Rupke called a market police was an ongoing need in a world where people, whether out of atavistic drives or admirable humanitarian motives, kept trying to make the earth a more equal and just place. I wouldn't say the book has any solutions, certainly now less than ever, but it does its best at description, and I'm looking forward to having a discussion about that. Thank you. So let's have a chat. Yeah. All right. Um, so I've written one or two things about the subject uh -huh. when you were a wee boy. Yeah. And this is fundamental, as I said in the back of the book, I blurbed it. This has fundamentally changed the way that I think about this. So I want to try and walk people through, in a sense, what happened to me, and we can talk about aspects of the book, right? So, he so here's, the here's the first one I'll go with. Let's start with the present. We have a, uh, a president, and we're going to get to this at the end as well. Yeah. Um, we have a president who says he's not a globalist. Yes. Yet he's not exactly a socialist by any means. Mm -hmm. He actually does want to affect redistributions. He wants to actively get into the economy. But he's hardly what you would call a sort of prototypical post-war Keynesian by any means. Now, let's dig deeper on this. One of the things that I found most fascinating about your term globalists, mm -hmm. and let's start with the, what happened in Vienna. The, the ability to treat labor as, on the one hand, simply a commodity that must be free, mm -hmm. and then on the other hand, um, a kind of, how to put it, you have no claim to sovereignty, you have no claim to redistribution, you have no claim to rights. You are an object in a, in a political sense as well, and you circulate as other commodities do, right? That is a kind of critique that a Trump supporter, a more sophisticated one, might give of the quote-unquote global elite. Mm -hmm. There's a real resonance there, and I'm reminded of uh, when uh, the Prime Minister May said to the Tory party conference, if you're a citizen of nowhere, you're not a, you're, you're not a subject anywhere or whatever. If you're a citizen of the world, then you're, you're a citizen exactly, of the world. Exactly, right, exactly. And they were very much for a view of citizens of the world. So we seem to be in a moment yep. in which that's come really back into tension. Uh -huh. So talk a little bit about you know, how, the origins of that. What, why fetishize the system? When I think about liberals, I think about individual liberty, I think about personal sovereignty, all the rest of it, the Lockean tradition. This is miles away from there. So mm -hmm. g give us a little bit on sort of how, this thing, how and why this thing was constructed. Sure, I mean, I think that maybe I can answer it by returning to that moment in the 90s and what we meant by globalization then, right? I mean, I think it kind of had, that discourse had two central elements. One was a kind of aspect of naturalization, right? The sense that what was happening um, at the level of the global economy was something that had a kind of a force to it that forced the hand of national states in a way that it was hopeless to resist. And mm -hmm. so all we could do was to kind of offload um, autonomy to this 
references to this thing called the global economy. Mm -hmm. And second, there was a kind of goal and reality of depoliticization, right? So the idea that decisions about trade, for example, would be decided in advance through mm -hmm. locked-in um, clauses in something like the WTO treaty or the, the NAFTA treaty. The opposition to that at the time was largely coming from the left, and it would describe itself as, at the time as a kind of alter-globalization, mm -hmm. right? I think that was you know, clearly a better way to think about it than anti-globalization. No call wasn't for a kind of isolation or a sealing off of politics or economics, but to organize the world economy in different ways and specifically to confront those two points, to kind of denaturalize it and to repoliticize the world economy. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a helpful way to think about what, in effect, Trump and his trade team are, are doing. I mean, they are carrying out a kind of alter-globalization from the right, right? They're they are openly embracing the politicization of fields that were usually seen as sacrosanct zones for the, for the economic decision-making, right. right? And they are, they are denaturalizing the way the global economy works by saying it is simply a struggle of political entities, national entities, and the economy is not a kind of bracketed space beyond mm -hmm. that, right? So I think that just at a descriptive level, that's the that's the best way to think about what what they're doing. And I think that then the questions that open up are the ones that are not being asked. I think in this sort of false opposition of kind of open versus closed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that when you when you accept that there is a kind of alter globalization happening here, I think you can still then ask, but what what um, aspects of the political program of neoliberalism are still central to this program of the right, even if it is, we, we can concede a kind of alter-globalist version. Right. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see, actually, the sort of the narrowing of political imagination when you see that, you know, even at the supposedly the, the furthest ends of the spectrum here, the status quo versus the right insurgency, it's still really varieties of capitalism that we're arguing about here, right? I mean, in the end, it isn't a fundamentally mm -hmm. different political economic system. It's really a tactical question about how do you get better access to, to foreign markets? Is it through multilateralism or is it through more aggressive mm -hmm. unilateralism or even bilateral means? So that's the first part of your question. Yeah. The second part of your question, I think, is about what did these neoliberals admire so much about the economy and how is that different than our typical idea of liberal beliefs and in individuals. But also, freedom. you know, global, that abstraction, the system yeah. that you mentioned, right? The yeah. end is the system. That, yeah. that just, that, that's what immediately struck me is, no, the end is liberty. I've read Mill. I understand this. But no, it wasn't really, was it? In the case of Hayek, no. And in the case of Mises, also no, right? I mean, if you read what they're saying, they have a very kind of a functionalist attitude towards the, the, the nature of something like democracy, for example. You know, what is good about democracy? is that it provides a mechanism for peaceful change, for the most part, peaceful regime change. And it allows some space for the kind of evolutionary discover of, of new ways of um, perfecting the production process, basically. Um, when it ceases to fulfill that function, then it tips over into the need for some kind of repression or the curtailment of democracy, right? So democracy certainly is not a value in itself mm -hmm. for someone like Hayek. It's a value insofar as it serves a different function. And I think that you can extend that to his whole attitude towards the individual and individual liberty. Um, individual liberty and individual freedom is a principle that he embraces and promotes insofar as it offers a means of achieving this higher end, which is a kind of systemic stability or a kind of the coherence of the whole. I think that the, the, um, 
the metaphor that he offers about the leaf to me really captures that well. I think it's important to kind of interject at this point because it might seem like I am just this sort of fire-breathing, anti-neoliberal, anti-Austrian polemicist that, that card-carrying Hayekians at the highest level completely accept my interpretation. But, <laughs> like the current president of the Montpellier Society, who has written multiple books about Hayek and sees himself as a Hayekian, thinks this is a good book and doesn't complain about, say, this comparison to the metaphor of the leaf, mm -hmm. my portrayal of Mises, and how he thought about economic policy in the 1920s. So, and in fact, they like it mm -hmm. because I think it gets closer to where they're actually coming yeah. from. And, and in, in this moment, actually, this political conjuncture, that actually gives them a kind of nobility of purpose, mm. which is actually greater than simply fighting for individual liberty or individual rights, right? Right. Because we're back at a moment where it seems like what is at stake is not just can I do this or can I buy that, but will the system, will the system as hold? such hold? Right. So, I mean, just by pure repetition, not because I think of any structural similarities, but by pure repetition, we found ourselves back in the sort of 1930s dilemma, at least discursively, right? Mm -hmm. Rhetorically, we've talked ourselves yes. into that fact. And they get to own the system. And they so get to be the ones who, who speak on behalf of the whole and against the particularity and the, the fighting politicized um, you know, self-interest of this or that right. nation. But so this, within this, there's a kind of dissolution of politics, not just democracy. Democracy is purely an electoral means for avoiding revolution in, in this yes. reading. So politics just disappears in the following sense. So any political scientist, first day of class, they sit you down and say, right, here's your Laswell definition of politics. Who gets what, when, where, and why? It's all about distribution. Now, it's not just mm -hmm. the state redistributing. It is a question of the distribution of power, resources, etc. None of this happens. When it happens, it's always seen as the error term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that is impossible. It's the evacuation of politics because, by definition, the dividing up of the resources of the world through any mechanism, whether it's capitalism, socialism, whatever, mm -hmm. is distributionary. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's one thing to say we've got the higher purpose, we're focused on the system, we're on the long game here, kids, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, who gives a shit? Because what you care about is that stuff that's on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Does that, doesn't that lead to a kind of political paralysis for that mode of thought? Well, I mean, I think that it's important to see that it is a, um, a mode of argument that's pitched directly at elites. It's for elites by elites, right? I mean, I think Andrew Gamble had the best uh, way of describing uh, the way that Hayek's thought works, which is, you know, he did have this kind of cafe culture notion of how to engage with an intellectual opponent and poten potentially persuade them. So he knew how to deal with his peers. Anyone below that, he could only think about means of disenfranchising them, right? right? I mean, that was, that was really the... Ex he put the bulk of his argumentative sort of imagination in that sort of elite-to-elite -elite discussion, which is, I think, broadly true for the kind of Montpellier society discussions that happened from the 40s up into about the 90s. In the 90s, we do get this sort of interesting twist, though, right? I mean, if neoliberal thought has been primarily about the elites against the masses, constraining the masses at some level, I don't think many people would disagree with that, in the 90s, you get, especially with the kind of radical anarcho-capitalist tradition around Murray Rothbart, which gets picked up in Germany and Austria, too, there's a reversal, mm. where there's the belief that now you can somehow use the masses against the elites. Because the elites have, in a sense, co-opted and captured the system, so you need their energy. Because the elites have become sclerotic, and in fact, they, in fact, the elites might be more socialist-minded than the masses themselves, mm -hmm. right? So by the 90s, there's a feeling that you don't longer have to worry about a kind of organic revolt of the working class in the traditional way, right? Most people had been su successfully subsumed into the need to mm -hmm. constantly think about their own credit score and things like that. So the elites are the ones who had the freedom to 
right? So that so all the Ivy, all the socialists are in the Ivy League schools. Yeah. This sort of a notion. So that becomes, I think, a very important and kind of portentous twist mm-hmm. in in neoliberal thought. But but up until that point, it is in fact a kind of a, a, a project of depoliticization, of a bracketing of the political and of a bracketing of the very problem of legitimacy. Right. I think on its own terms, and in that sense. It's, they, they avoided distributional questions at their peril, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because I think one has to be attentive to that without, you know, yeah. losing the game of... I mean, of to, to me, one of the, the, the ones always popped up to me as an example was the, the, the one sort of economic institution which doesn't either get criticism or is occasionally applauded are central banks, mm-hmm. monetary mm-hmm. stability, et cetera, particularly in the sort of the ordo-liberal tradition. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, when you raise interest rates, that's redistributionary. When you cut them, that's redistributionary. Mm-hmm. By definition, you're playing redistribution. But again, mm-hmm. there seems to be a complete myopia, not just to that, mm-hmm. but to the notion that politics is what society does. Mm-hmm. It's almost an attempt to abolish politics by basically encasing us all within this framework at the top. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us more about this notion of encasement. What is it you're trying to get at with that? Well, I think that I was just really reacting to this this um, sort of reflexive way we have of describing the era of global capitalism since the 90s as a period of liberated markets, unfettered markets. Because when you learn about the field of international economic law, or sort of watch the way that is changing with bilateral investment treaties, the the international investment law landscape is just explodes after 1989, right? right? So you actually have more and more people who are earning a living litigating and um, enforcing and you know, bringing cases related to ver- this very question of global trade, right? Mm-hmm. So there's actually the institutional landscape is actually becoming more and more crowded with actors and players and people who are you know stakeholders in kind of how do you control the movement of of um, goods from one part of the world to the other as the volume of that trade grows. So that just seemed to me um, completely at odds with this notion of sort of you know, just sort of the feckless, like, frictionless movement of things in, in the way that one often sees. If you try to Google image search globalization, which I do with some frequency, you know, you almost get the same image, which is of, of the earth crisscrossed by... It flows. By, it's usually blue, yeah. seemingly always this sort of blue laser-like, you know, unimpeded, almost instant, right? There is this kind right. of this discourse of, like, the of, of instantaneousness that of course is true when one thinks about certain communications technologies, but even there, the world in which this takes place is an institutional one. Mm -hmm. And thinking about the way that certain forms of trade and interaction get locked in and defended and litigated through law seems to lead us more to a notion of encasement of certain forms of trade rather than um, liberation and freedom. So thinking uh, a little bit about that, uh, oh, sorry, I lost what I was going. I was listening to you there, and I completely lost what I was going with that one. Um, encasement, but I don't want to go. I want to go encasement, redistribution to ah, that was it, Habsburg. Uh huh. Right. So I'm I can put on a hat and say I'm British. Okay. If I want to, or yeah. Scottish, or whatever. Right. So we lost an empire. Mm-hmm. We're still trying to get over it. Yes. No one really unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully. Nobody pays Brexit. Um, nobody really, you know, mourns the loss of Habsburg. I thought. Mm-hmm. But it turns out this is actually a real touchstone and a real mirror for what this project is. Why, mm-hmm. why, what was so awesome about Habsburg? Well, I mean, 
for Mises especially, who had really been socialized in the Habsburg Empire, I mean, Hayek and his cohort are all born around 1900, so they are all kind of like you know teenagers really when the, mm -hmm. when the empire ends in, in 1918. But someone like Mises is trained to be a civil servant inside of the Habsburg Empire. I mean, you went to university in Vienna to administer the empire. And at some level, he, he believed in and bought into the solution, as he saw it, that had been arrived at in Habsburg for doing something that's actually very hard, which is how do you govern a space that is filled with people of different languages, mm -hmm. different nationalities in their understanding, you know, even different races in the kind of Central European way of thinking of it at the time. He himself is Jewish, meaning he was put in what Ernst Gellner calls the Habsburg dilemma, which is he can't play the game of nationalism because he loses, right? As a Jew, there's no sort of way of arguing for, you know, a kind of a place, a territory, special privileges within the Habsburg, within the Habsburg territory. So he's forced to defend, sort of, constitutionally, he's forced to defend the idea of some kind of a structure that can preserve multi-confessionality and multinationality. But the problem is he's also, you know, and, and, and so, he's a, so he's a political liberal in that sense, and he's also an economic liberal. Mm -hmm. So he needs to figure out a way that you can have a space of people with diverse ways of understanding who they are and their identities, who nonetheless will be able to trade with each other and, and act in concert and, on harmon and harmony economically. And he believed in his sort of retroactive um, construction of what the Habsburg Empire was, is that they had, they, they had kind of solved one of the problems of world order. And they had solved it through what he called a kind of a regime of double government. And Hayek says the same thing, that we actually need a political government and an economic government. Mm -hmm. And the political government can do things like give people language schools, they can have their flags, they can even have their coins. The economic government, however, will preserve things like free movement of labor, free movement of goods, uh, free movement of investment. And if you can convince people sufficiently that they are self-determining, mm -hmm. while also strongly restraining the autonomy that they have to be self-determining by having free movement of capital and labor and, 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 and goods, then you will have potentially solved the problem of the world after empire. Right. Right? So, the, so the whole project of trying to dream of a global economic architecture mm -hmm. is really trying to scale up what he saw as the kind of the successful double government of the Habsburg Empire. Of course, it didn't bear that much relationship to the actual place. Right? Yeah. I mean, the Habsburg was actually very protectionist. You can't, you can't sort of um, hive off economic questions from political and cultural questions that's the way that he sort of naively thought that you could. Mm -hmm. It simply doesn't work that way. Um, but this became the kind of the, the, the ideal model of how things could turn out. And in many ways, by the mid-1990s, I think when you have, a, you have a global economic architecture that is linking us all as one unity while still allowing for levels of, yeah, the, the world has been kind of Habsburgized right, yeah, yeah. in a strange way. And people were talking about it that way, sort of within the neoliberal tradition, they were saying, what we see with something like the WTO is that national sovereignty is good, but it does need to exist within the supranational constraints of a kind mm -hmm. of a higher order. And in the in the Arab Empire, that would be the, the higher instance of the of the of the crown or the, the the empire itself. And now it's the higher instance of a supranational organization that protects the the flow of free trade. So whilst selling that, going back to this as a project, yeah. the, the same people on the end of it, at the end of empire, 
wanted federations. This was the next move. We're going to have federations. They're going to build them out bilaterally. We're going to kind of like do a little EU project in a sense is yep. ultimately what it was. Uh, but go back to one of the examples you gave earlier. The clarion call for Austria to do better mm -hmm. was for everybody in the country to suffer a 50% wage cut. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you square the two? I mean, in a sense, one is a very positive vision of look what we've lost, even if it's not true, and we can all get to a better place, and if we simply play by these rules and have this double government, we'll all be better off. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I'm asking you to take a 50% pay cut. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it's simply labor has to adjust. Austrians have to have lower wages. We need the biggest market we can, and then, in a sense, we'll all be happier. But that claim isn't even made. No, though the happiness, the, the, happiness the aggregate happiness, never gets there. Claim isn't actually made, right? Right. I mean, Mises is very is very clear about this. I mentioned that in the first chapter of the book, when, when, when Austria is being threatened by competition from Chinese producers already before the First World War. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that Mises writes, he's in a statistics class with Schumpeter which apparently was also visited by Hilferding. Mises says it's every- quite a seminar. <laughs> it was, boom, Bobberg, yeah. Wow. And, and Grunberg. Um, Mises says, you know, everyone is saying we need to protect our goods against Chinese competition, but I see it another way. Maybe we'll have to lower our wages and our living condition to the level of the, quote, uh, coolie or the Hindu to be able to compete on the, on the level playing field, right? But why would anyone ever think that would be possible or desirable? if you were already there. Like, yeah, that's a good idea, let's go for that. Because at some level, you know, to access the endowments of the world in like a hard Ricardian way, then you do need a kind of an absolute um, international division of labor. He, he poo-pooed Ricardo for not being Ricardian enough, right? Because right. Ricardo said, well, capital likes to stay at home, it's not actually gonna cross the globe. And Mises said, oh yes, it will, and it should. Right. Right, so, so there's a kind of a, a leveling effect, which is, yeah, I mean, much of what, what when, you, when you read what they're saying, you're like, how does a politician sell this stuff, right. right? I mean, it seems to be totally out of touch with, like, the creation of a campaign yes. or a platform. And or that, even your residualist notion of democracy. Well, yeah, I mean, this, this is why I, f I found, especially looking at the post-First World War mo moment, it's often described as Wilson versus Lenin, right? But these are just varieties of national self-determination. Mm -hmm. And then next to that, you actually have Mises, who yeah, says that like self-determination is totally subordinate to global economic integration. Right. And the autonomy, the, the space of maneuver for any given nation is always going to be in the iron constraints. And that's what, that's what this book gives, gave me, was I, that's the bit that I never knew, in mm -hmm. a sense. Like when you start there, it changes the whole picture. Mm -hmm. So just a couple of more from me, we'll just open up to everybody else, but I just want to get these on the table. Um, the, the neoliberals of this period, they were fantastically busy in terms of employment. Mm -hmm. They did all sorts of different stuff at quite a high level, which mm -hmm. is another part of the story we don't hear. Mm -hmm. They were active, the phrase tariff walls comes mm -hmm. from this period, mm -hmm. and they, they, they had maps that they took around and showed people of the height of the wall. Mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a wall. Yeah, it was a, a suitcase-sized so diorama. It, it was a diorama, right? And uh, then there were statisticians. Then mm -hmm. there were business cycle hawkers for financial news. Then they got involved in all that stuff that we did over here of business barometers, mm -hmm. but which we still do. We just do it now with more sophisticated graphs, right? Mm -hmm. But that's a, mm -hmm. And then, basically, you don't really go into the calculation debate, but they, they, they kind of seem to get into trouble around 1935, 1936. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if economics is going this way as a whole. Leftward. And, and yeah. Leftward. Well, mm -hmm. not just leftward, also sort of, you know, more formalist, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of go, all right, we're not doing this anymore. 
and then that's when the sort of the moment of discovering Cadillac saying you, it's a beyond our comprehension is all there. Mm -hmm. You would think that would be a dead end, but that's mm -hmm. actually where almost everybody else starts their story. Right. So you know, how, how, what's that? What does knowing that backstory tell you? What does it give us in the story that we didn't know already? Well, I mean, I think part of my part of my hope with the book was it would kind of undermine a sloppy conflation between economism, quote unquote, and neoliberalism mm -hmm. as somehow the same things. And I mean, someone like James Kwok, whose book I, you know, I feel like I learned a lot from, he'll still sort of say that the importers of the idea of economism are Mises and Hayek, these Austrian emigrants. But that's an outrageous statement, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, economics as a discipline, I think what you're describing is exactly right, which is the moment at which Hayek was a mainstream economist was the 1930s doing business cycle research, talking about how you can hopefully avoid crises. And then what he sees is that actually this argument is being picked up by social democrats um, and even more, even even worse, by, by labor unions. And that actually if you give people a kind of portrait of the economy and you give them a sense of how they can control it, then you tend to kind of give a very powerful weapon into the hands of working class parties and working class politics. And so he kind of cut, you know, he cuts mm -hmm. <laughs> from that pretty quickly and then he begins to declare no, any attempt at oversight is futile, but P.S. also because to try to look at only at the level of the nation mm -hmm. is actually the wrong frame, that the economy is a global thing, so you do your Keynesian um, national income accounting and that's, that's drawing a kind of a cordon around the nation and that's simply epistemologically wrong as well as being politically wrong. But you can see this stuff, I, one of my favorite sources that I came across in the archives was um, right after Mises and Hayek start the Austrian Business Cycle Research Institute, there is an article about it in the, the Viennese workers' newspaper. And it's a short article, but it says, a new institute has been created here in Vienna, and we can use this now much better to organize our strikes and our labor stoppages and our slowdowns. And there's literally, <laughs> there's literally red ink on the side of it in the margins and underlined four times. And I don't know if that was Mises or Hayek himself, but it might as well have been, because right? uh -huh. it, it serves to signal well their kind of they're kind of turned from what I think is really the birth of mainstream economics yes. in a way, and towards legal mysticism, all f forms of sort of constitutional fetishism right. um, that leads them out on into a very peculiar territory. So I think to kind of to kind of um, throw out all of mainstream economics under the pretense that it's all Hayekian is just a bizarre right. statement, and in fact. You know, as we know, economics as a discipline has, has contributed in a direct way into social democratic projects and project of redistribution and building social justice that, um, that the, the neoliberals actually actively mobilized against. So I think breaking apart that couplet was, mm -hmm. for me, quite important, not just empirically, but also kind of like politically. So I think it's, it's very unwise to sort of <laughs> say that you can't have any connection right. to economics as a discipline because it's tainted somehow by its connection to these these evil Austrians. Yes. Right. So just one one last one, just again to get out on the table. Another the other big surprise in the book was the one identity that they do admit is race, mm. and it's a racial hierarchy. Now this is not true for all of the people. In no. fact, it's really Rocke and, and a few others. But it's a very pronounced strain and. We, many of us know the story of Chile and Chicago Boys, etc. But the South African connection is utterly fascinating. Mm -hmm. Can you give us just a sort of a quick synopsis or a quick flavor as to what that was all about and how it nearly split the neoliberal movement? Sure. So this is also quite relevant to the present because 
basically Mises, as a as a Jew, as someone who fled from fascists, you know, wasn't on board obviously with the kind of race science that the Nazis were doing, and, and not just obviously, but he openly stated that this is pseudoscience. It's ridiculous, the idea that you know different races have different motivations are, are, is, is absurd, all humans are the same. He was very much universalist when it came to humans. But then he did have moments where he said, however, race theory maybe perhaps does hold the key to understanding uh, human variation, how we have some civilizations that flourished and some that died. Perhaps one day this will be something that will be dug into more, sort of like two lines. That happens, he doesn't pursue it again, he never talks about race as a category. Hayek more or less explicitly opposes race as a category. Um, even in his arguments with sociobiologists in the 1970s, he was saying, this is wrong, they put too much weight on genetics, this is actually culture that is the space and the medium of evolution. Traditions and morality is not carried by genes. So that's the hard sort of Austrian side of it. The Wilhelm Rupke, however, who is not probably well known in this room or in generally in the United States, but is kind of revered in Switzerland and in Germany and in Holland as one of the fathers of the post-war social market economy, um, went hard as an apologist and advocate for South African apartheid. And his argument there was that, that the races have different capacities, that the, the, the black man in South Africa is of a specifically different type, and to imagine that he can operate on the same level politically as the white man is, is, is a suicide mission. These are the kind of language that he's using. So he basically follows closely with the kind of the National Review, William Buckley position on white supremacy uh, as attached to a kind of free market position in the, 19, the 1950s and 60s. There's another character involved, William Hutt, who is often held up as the kind of a hero for libertarians because he opposed apartheid, and so, so put, that he was an anti-apartheid activist. But what he actually was is he was against color bars in the marketplace. So that's what he opposed um, racial discrimination in the, in the field of occupations and, and you know, consumption as well. But what he believed at the same time, and this is in his most famous book, Economics of the Color Bar, is that there should be a weighted franchise. So you can you free up and you get rid of the color bar in the market, but to avoid exploitation by a black majority, you give their vote less weight. And that is a situation that he said will probably continue for a very long time, at which point you will introduce sort of along the model of degressive proportionality. Um, blacks' votes will then you know, continue to be worth less even as their qualifications grow. So it's a complicated story. The reason it's important to the present is that there is a strain of racist libertarianism that leads into the alt-right. Hans Hermann Hoppe is the most famous um, proponent, and he, like Rothbard, who I mentioned earlier, go back to these one or two tiny parenthetical lines from Mises and say, look, Mises never denied the reality of race. He's been with us the whole time. He was a race realist from the get-go, right? So there's a way that that idea of humanity as being fundamentally you know, composed of people with group differences of capacity is not part of the main line of the, the neoliberal story, as I understand it, at all. But um, recently, in the more radical, stateless, anarcho-capitalist strains of, of neoliberalism that unfortunately have been very influential in the right populist parties in places like Austria and Germany, um, that has now come back again, and it's provided an even stronger kind of legitimation for them to oppose things like welfare state, open borders, 
um, in Central Europe. Cool. I think we covered some ground. Let's do some questions. Do you want to just field your own from the room? I'm sure you're perfectly capable. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's fine. Let's go. Um, thanks, Quinn, for this uh, super interesting uh, presentation. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what you think is neo about mm -hmm. neoliberals. Because I've gotten a few things from this presentation, and I know there's sort of competing senses. So I wonder if you could sort of organize these for, for us. So one thought is that neoliberals, unlike classical liberals, mm -hmm. historically speaking. Um, don't think of the market as something natural, but as something needs to be instituted. Oh, Let's to, get all this on. Yeah. It's a good idea. All right. now, you, now you've got all your thoughts, you can ask the question properly. Now that you've interrupted me. <laughs> I've lost all my thoughts. No. Um, so, so one thought is that the kind of classical liberals think that the market's kind of natural and you just need to deregulate it and, and just sort of, it's an opportunity to give people freedom and it will sort of organize itself. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think you suggested, and I've heard other people say this, that the neoliberalism actually sees the market as a kind of piece of political technology that it needs to be instituted and maintained through use of the state. That's mm -hmm. one axis. Mm -hmm. Another you suggested, um, especially with your vivid recounting of the of the strike and the fire, the Palace of Justice, mm -hmm. is that neoliberalism is born out of the experience of needing to defeat the left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's it's a way of defending a market economy given the fully a fully developed set of socialist parties and radical trade union movements and communist theory that includes the use of economic theory. It's it's all right. It's going to, under the board. That's fine. To, oh, okay, to defend, um, I guess, a market economy against socialism. I don't know. Uh, Feudalism, it's more the, the old regime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then this third, which I get from the title of your discussion, is that neoliberals are especially concerned with understanding capitalism as a global mm -hmm. social and political order in a way that I guess classical liberals aren't, or is that? Is that what's new, or is it that it has a different place in their thinking from classical liberals? So those are sort of three things that came out, and I wonder if you could say which what way do all of them make it neo as opposed to not just liberal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, at some level, of course, I would agree with, with, with all three of those. I think that the way that I approach the problem is to see how solutions to the problem of saving capitalism against both its internal capacity to self-destruct and the kind of the most um, disintegrative forces that are trying to destroy it, how, you know, what strategies can be formed to kind of save capitalism against both itself and against its enemies. And what those enemies are, uh, according to neoliberals, is in the 20th century, this, the problem of the universalization of the principle of self-determination and the universalization of the principle of, of one man, one vote democracy becomes the kind of the threat against which you know, the, the institutionally the market needs to be protected. So I think it is, you know, very much to your second point, one needs to understand um, neoliberal theory the same as really, I guess, all political theories as emerging contextually from things that are seen as, you know, existential threats to its, the existence of its core principles. And what I tried to see in the book is like, where are those principles, where are those threats? 
And yes, it was the left at some times. At other times, when you think about something like the new international economic order and the demands coming from global south countries led especially by oil producing countries who have realized, oh, we can kind of shut down the world economy if we like politicize this one commodity, the commodity of oil, then is that a left threat? I don't know. Like, I don't know if that is a help, such a helpful way of describing it. You know, it's a, dis it's a, it's a disruptive politicizing threat. So, and the same way, you know, the, the card-carrying neoliberals that I speak to are very worried about Trump, right? They see him as opening the door that I described of kind of politicization in a way that could lead to a kind of systemic breakdown. So I think that, that sort of performing that slate of hand whereby depoliticization, you know, the political work that needs to go into depoliticization can sort of present itself as non-political is really the is really the central problem and the, the circumstances of not just economic globalization but the, the generalization of the principle of democracy and post-imperial national self-determination creates just a totally different landscape for that than it was for the classical liberals in the 19th century. But to be honest, I'm thinking more and more that it's helpful to think about the similarities between something like Keynesianism and neoliberalism in certain ways. So Jeff Mann's recent book on Keynes, I think, offers a, a vision of Keynes as someone who, you know, wanted the same thing as the neoliberals. In other words, he wanted the maintenance of a free market order at a global level, and he saw a certain kind of institutional fix that could be carried out to achieve that, just as the neoliberals had theirs. It was just about moving the, the promises about, about social welfare provision in different ways. Um, but I think both of them can be helpfully subsumed under the notion of liberalism, and and the fighting over the label has like probably not that helpful anymore. But I, I appreciate the um, I appreciate the the push on it. So. So you've talked a lot about how these these thinkers are reacting to the radical left and dissolution of the Habsburg Empire and wave of revolution after 1917. So I just want to ask about the people on the other side of the coin and whether or not they matter. Mm -hmm. uh, the people that I'm more interested in more the fascists. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You talked about, Mark pressed you a little bit on this race issue, and I wanted to ask you, what is, what is because I regret I've not read the book yet, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what is the relationship to fascist movements within uh, Central Europe during this period? Because it seems like on the one hand, obviously, the race issue is, 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 is deeply troubling to them. The sort of opportunistic interference in the workings of the free market to serve the purposes of rearmament, inflation, what have you, are problematic. But fascism, I, I, I personally truck with a sort of Marxist view of fascism as a sort of response of, you know, it, capitalists trying to sort of crush the labor movement and sort of using these people as, as, as instruments and then being devoured by them. Mm -hmm. uh, the fascists in all of in Germany, Italy, elsewhere, are all seen as violently opposed to organized labor. They, they do form a very close relationship with heavy industry, monopoly capitalism. So mm -hmm. how, do the, how do these globalists, how do they make sense of what's going on? Does it even really matter because they, they see fascism as a dying movement? Because it seems like today, authoritarian nationalism is perhaps more of a threat than, than radical leftism is in terms of uh, the liberal democratic project. From their point of view, right. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, with on their own terms, if I mean, if you read Hayek and what he writes about, then he writes as much about the threat from the right as 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 from the left. I mean, just at a, the level of what's happening inside the text, um, and both of them have the same problem. One of the things that connects them is is according to them, this, this notion of, of trying to cordon off the national economy as, a, as something that could even potentially be self-sufficient, of politicizing economic relations, which they see as the, the right is doing as much as the left is doing. Um, where I think people draw connections between someone like Hayek and fascism, sometimes fairly, most often unfairly, is it, usually the connecting figure is Carl Schmitt, right? And I think there, just as I think it makes sense in some ways to kind of connect Hayek to Keynes in the kind of belief in what are the, what are the measures necessary to sustain the whole and the system against uh, counter-movements. Similarly, when one looks at the way that ordo-liberals think about the need to preserve the system against challenges, they in, sometimes they directly refer to Carl Schmitt's idea of the need for an act of will or an act of decision that will come from the elites and from the politicians at a level um, from the top down. So there's this, this notion of the possibility of an authoritarian liberalism, which, you know, it combines both the points. I mean, it sounds a bit too, it probably sounds a bit too foggy to say that Hayek is someone who could combine aspects of both Keynes and Schmidt, but I actually don't think it's that far-fetched because from one, you get the notion of systemic inter interdependence, and from the other, you, you get the notion of the need for kind of elite moments of decision, um, that cut off other options for political action when the system is under threat. Um, so insofar as fascism is a kind of uh, mode of governance that welcomes the sort of, that speaks in the name of the people, but then also um, welcomes moments of bracketing democracy and making, um, you know, decisions in a decisionistic fashion, then I think that that neoliberalism in practice has often looked like that. But but most of the, the core principles of fascism just don't fit well with uh, with neoliberalism as I see it. I mean the the kind of the invocation of the of the of the single people, the need for a kind of um, a constant kind of competition between um, you know fundamentally different peoples. There's certain ways that perhaps neoliberalism has been grafted onto things in ways that look like that, but in its kind of doctrinal form, I mean it's something that looks quite different, I think. Uh, thank you. This has been a really engaging talk. Um, I guess I wanted to kind of follow up on that and maybe hear some of your thoughts in terms of um, this tension that seems to exist with the neoliberals and in particular with Hayek's kind of concern for maintaining and preserving this global system of integrated markets and this concern for kind of encasing, as you said, mm -hmm. this global system. And Hayek's more specific concerns, so to speak, about the, the pretense of knowledge, as he says in his Nobel speech, or this mm -hmm. inability for elites to actually engage in specific economic planning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe if you could just talk a little bit about how you s see that tension or resolve that tension in terms of, of their approach towards preserving or setting, mm -hmm. setting the stage for the conditions for uh, global markets to proliferate. Sure, yeah. So I mentioned that Nobel speech in the book, and it's not often noted that it's in direct response to the Club of Rome's first Limits to Growth report, which was done at basically at MIT with computers, you know, 
projecting certain forms of, of resource consumption and population growth over time and saying like, oh my God, we need to drastically cut down the amount of the resources of the world we're using or we are going to run out, right? And that led to, in the early 1970s, uh, you know, a real widespread discussion, probably to a level that hasn't been repeated again, of the need to kind of intervene directly and in quite radical ways to change the way that policy worked, to change the way that everyday consumption worked. And in other words, it was a kind of a high moment of, you know, large-scale social engineering. There's no other way of putting it. And for, for Hayek, this is kind of the opposite of the way that he understands how policy needs to be approached, right, which is what he says in that speech, which is to say, because there is at some level a kind of a complexity that is, you know, extends beyond human comprehension, we can't try to know the whole at such a level that we can make this or that policy suggestion or this or that forecast, but we need to kind of default to first principles. So the legal architecture of something like the WTO, I always find fascinating. If you look at all the journals that are being written by the people who are involved with creating the WTO, you won't find any numbers in them. You won't find graphs. You won't find projections of how this will affect world trade. It's not being actually argued or built on those premises. It's being argued on the premise of legal principles, of reciprocity, of most favored nation, right, of these principles that exist in a kind of space outside of that of outputs or testable kind of hypotheses or um, statistics-based arguments. So that's the, the Hayekian approach to global economic governance as I see it, is one that doesn't speak in terms of um, specific outcomes or specific deliverables, but defaults to a kind of ironclad principle, which in the end runs into, of course, a legitimacy problem and revolt from the margins. So the, the perfect sort of bearer of Hayekian style thinking in recent years is Wolfgang Schäuble, the finance minister of, of Germany during the Eurozone crisis, when, as Yanis Varoufakis describes at some point, he's standing there trying to explain to Schäuble and other finance ministers why this, these measures are going to have a catastrophic effect on the Greek economy, and they're not even pretending to listen to him. <laughs> they don't even need to feign persuasion because what's underway is not a moment of intellectual exchange or the use of kind of rational argumentation. It's a firm statement of principle along with the, that is being now exercised in the kind of a Schmidtian fashion. So that, to me, is the, that's the... The corollary of, of Hayek's limits of knowledge is this kind of limits of, of, um, of resistance, right? There's a, there's a moment at which the state will not and should not um, give or relent, regardless of what people know that the outcome will be. Uh, thanks very much, Quinn. Uh, you argue in your book against conventional representations of neoliberalism as being about freeing and unfettering markets, and also the uh, uh, related, I think, conventional uh, idea about neoliberalism, which is that it's economistic. And I wonder if the confusion here doesn't have to do with the, the differences between neoliberalism as an intellectual movement in terms of the Geneva School mm -hmm. and neoliberalism as an actually existing political culture and political economy. Like, for example, could some of the confusion here be explained in the differences between how the drafters of the WTO explained their, their work and how Thomas Friedman defended it at the time in the New York Times? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's a conscious decision that I make to kind of to use the word neoliberalism quite 
discreetly and sparingly, right? I mean, not sparingly, I use it all over the place. But, but use it to describe specifically like a set of conversations around a very discreet group of people connected to them all power in society. In that sense, I'm following the work of Dieter Pleva and Bernard Valpin and Phil Murawski saying that at some level, the only way we can, sur- we can sort of salvage this term is by giving it a v- specificity of a particular ideology that's being developed in a long series of discussions that stretch over decades. So in that sense, I wouldn't call Thomas Friedman a neoliberal as much as that might be shocking to hear. Right. I think it's more useful for me anyway to kind of keep that word for this set of conversations that is interconnected. And there, I think even there you can, however, draw out serious differences, right? There is a big difference between Chicago School, uh, the Chicago School of Friedman and Becker and Stiegler, which indeed does bring in some kind of cost-benefit analyses, which does sort of put price tags on, on every aspect of human existence. There's a big difference between that, microeconomic approach especially, and the kind of questions of international order and global order that I'm talking about when this category of the Geneva School. So that, I mean, that would partially be my answer. Yes, it is true that there can be confusion when neoliberalism is used quite generally to describe kind of global capitalist culture since the 70s or since the 90s. But as long as you kind of preserve a kind of specificity to that school of thought, the same way you would talk about... Um, you know, the same way you would talk about Keynesianism, then I think that one probably gets further. That would be my argument. Next up. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Bretton Woods and how it fits in this narrative? I, I'm having a problem placing it. Sure. Yeah, so I... I have a whole chapter that's the chapter that's called The World of Rights. And it's about the neoliberal critique of Bretton Woods at the time. And as you can probably imagine, the main thing that they were criticizing at the time was the capital controls that were being built into the Bretton Woods system, right? I mean, this would be a place where Keynesianism and neoliberalism as proposals for organizing the world economy diverge quite significantly, right? The, the, the notion that one could actually control the inflow and outflow of, of capital, and that that was a source of the Great Depression, is an argument made by one side of the, the, of the side of the Keynesian spectrum, and the neoliberals were arguing that no, actually, such flows are, they, they, they are balancing, and they create harmony, and they produce a greater, they, a greater stability in the end. So, what they were active doing in the time of, of the Bretton Woods system was to sort of argue for the addition of, as Mark mentioned, the human right of capital flight, the dismantlement of capital controls as they were being built into the IMF, and the addition of this, this human right to take capital out of a country to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, um, something with, which actually you know was taken seriously by legal experts like Philip Jessup at the time. So that was their core criticism of Bretton Woods. They also criticized what they saw as the kind of scaling up of the one man, one vote model to a kind of one country, one vote, even though clearly there was quota systems within the Bretton Woods institutions as they were created. They saw it as part of the UN system, which had a, which had a fundamentally flawed model, which, which, which analogized basically the world to a democracy in which countries that had relatively little economic significance should have 
a say that is at all equivalent to the countries that had great economic equivalence. So that was their critique of the 1.0 1944 Britain Bretton Woods system with the World Bank and the IMF. They actively worked to undermine the International Trade Organization, or the ITO, which was supposed to be the third part of the Bretton Woods system. They undermined it because it included too many rights for um, Global South nations, including the right to nationalize foreign-owned property that was written into the ITO as it was signed in Havana in 1947. And working with the International Chamber of Commerce, the people I described helped to torpedo that in, um, in, in Congress, um, thereby kind of paving the way for the, the, the um, more provisional model of the GATT. And eventually, the WTO kind of realizes the harder version of the ITO without the kind of provisions for national economic development that had been written into it originally. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this talk. I look forward to reading the book. I haven't as yet. Uh, I wanted to actually uh, pick your brain on one thing, which is to do with, uh, you know, libertarianism. At what point, uh, to be very short, does libertarianism take off away from neoliberalism thought uh, the way you describe it, and in the sense that neoliberalism, whether it's Hayek or whether it's Juan Mises, for them, it's always the system, right? Uh, mm -hmm. This notion of spontaneous order or the fact that you can't centralize knowledge, uh, which Hayek had in uh, one of his papers, whereas uh, libertarianism, which is often close to it, uh, mm -hmm. is yet different because for them, the starting point is always the individual, it's property rights. You know, Nozick individuals have rights and nobody can do anything to the rights and rights are kind of perpetual, mm -hmm. uh, come hell or high water. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas on one side, neoliberalism has some space built in. Both need the state, but both say no to the state. Mm -hmm. But neoliberalism still has some state, uh, you know, some space built in for uncertainty, for future uncertainty, or they recognize that you can't know the economy and all. Whereas libertarianism, given that it's so stringent on property rights, land has this issue of you know dealing with uncertainty mm -hmm. you know the example uh, for example the big pharma bro the guy who raised the prices uh, mm -hmm. of, of the Shkreli, drug yeah. right that's classic libertarianism i own the right to this and i can do whatever yeah mm -hmm. so how do these two positions get reconciled by mm -hmm. both sure. parties or they don't uh, yeah i mean so libertarianism is a big tent obviously right and my strong argument at the beginning of this book is to say that, you know, it's a falsehood to say that, that neoliberals don't believe in the state. If you actually look at what they're saying, it's about redesigning the state and how can the state be a better shell for capitalism, basically. And I'm not the first person to say that, that the rollback of the state is always about the rollout of another. Uh, people like Jamie Peck have been talking about making that argument for years. There are libertarians who similarly, you know, are minarchists, right? That there needs to be a minimal state. It needs only do things like protect the rule of law and security. But as soon as you open that to it, said only the rule of law and security, then the possibilities of, of uh, you know, an intensive, if not extensive state, I think, come rushing back in. So in a sense, I, I see neoliberals and libertarians as sort of part of the same camp until you get to the truly radical stateless libertarians of anarcho-capitalism, right? I think the Rothbard wing and the Hoppe wing and those that go with them, collected now around the Mises Institute for the most part in the United States, represent something that is substantively different from the neoliberalism of someone like Hayek, right? It's a kind of a dissident neoliberalism that is no longer in, 
making its arguments on the basis of the need to kind of protect the whole, that somehow be guardians of the economic constitution or guardians of the system. It's kind of, in most versions of it, it kind of discards with that and just speaks sort of a ruthlessly mercenary language of individual self-interest, right? So I think that that is indeed something that needs to be categorically kept separate from um, neoliberalism as a kind of a main line. However, I need to add there that those very anarcho-capitalists have also been quite open with making alliances with people who are nonetheless still interested in using states. So the the best example I can give of that is a guy named Peter Böhringer, who is... Um, he was a libertarian anarcho-capitalist gold consultant blogger from Munich who is now sitting in the Bundestag in Berlin as a delegate for the AFD, the Alternative for Germany Party, and he's the chair of the, the Parliamentary Budget Committee. Um, so this is something that you know you expect in expect inconsistency seems to be the best principle when you actually follow the history here. And those moments of kind of coalition between supposedly properly anarchistic, stateless um, libertarians with forms of, of political parties and political mobilizations are, in a way, some of the more interesting places to look. But I think that they definitely, I think you're right to, that you're touching on something there, that there is a, that there is a self-description of their own mission that, that is at variance with the kind of guardian of the system model that otherwise pertains. Um, I'm interested in you saying a little bit more about a, a word that you used, a key word, sort mm -hmm. of in some of your in your talk, and that's interdependence. Mm. Um, because if that's a if that's a kind of key word for Hayek, it's also a key word for a, a bunch of people who, uh, in this period in the 30s, 40s, 50s mm -hmm. that we would have thought as as cutting in 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 other political ways, and it suggests a really amb ambivalence at the heart of that word, right? Mm -hmm. So if for Hayek, and I'll let you say some more about that, it's it's about um, Connection, but inequality. For others, it was about it was about um, the sense that the world was now connected and thus needed to be made equal to equal that connection. Right. From the sense those lean in the center left and leaning further to the left, whether we think of it as people who were multilateralists or people who were anti-imperialists or part of the non-aligned movement. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you just would say something about the political valence, the social valence of that that term at that period, because yeah. that's interesting. No, thanks. Actually, I'm really glad that you asked the question in that way because it allows me to to um, protest against what has been already one misreading of this book, which is that I'm creating a kind of dichotomy between neoliberal globalism and progressive nationalism, right, by implication, that the only way that one could, because because neoliberals now own globalism according to this narrative, the only way that one could have a resistance against it would be to you know, reclaim sovereignty, the very sovereignty that's being um, strangled by the globalists. The person who I'm thinking of here is actually the sociologist Wolfgang Streich, who recently in, in a public discussion said, I just read this book, and now I know that the neoliberals have been at this for decades, and the only way that we can fight against kind of globalism is by restoring sovereignty to the nation and thinking more about national strength, which it kind of was a troubling conclusion from, from my book, because I, like like you, see globalism as something that contains many different political programs, as the insight of interdependence does as well. The best book I could point to you, point you to on this um, is The Emergence of Globalism by Orr Rosenboim, 
which just came out this last year, which shows that precisely at this moment of the uh, a moment which you've written about yourself, the, the kind of one-worldist moment of the 1940s, there's people who are saying, let's push this in a more, you know, redistributionist direction, and others are saying, let's put this in a, push this in a more anti-imperialist direction, and others are saying, let's use federations as a way to kind of lock in capital rights and ensure that there can't be an expansionary social state. So all those conversations are happening. The, the victory of one or the other is not preordained. And I think what I've been trying, what I tried to do in the book is like show these moments of competition actually more than a kind of a smooth path for the neoliberal vision from the 40s to the, to the 90s. So I think that keeping an eye on the kind of the diversity of political visions within a broad idea of globalism is more important now than ever, clearly, right? I mean, it's, it's necessary to not be kind of blackmailed by, you know, Trump's own, um, language into a kind of just a recovery of globalism as such. One has to obviously see how there's so many different forms of politics contained within that and figure out how we can recover, you know, the, the legacies that we find useful and criticize the ones that we don't. Yeah, so um, my question is that, like, how is this the politics of globalism, how is that altered in the age of Trump where you have, you know, this very right-wing response against globalist bureaucrats and the mm -hmm. EU and whatnot? Mm -hmm. And then portions of the center left are kind of, you know, against that, you know. And how does this relate to, you know, immigration where parties on the right favor restricted movement of labor and mm -hmm. free movement of capital, where mm -hmm. parties on the left favor restrictions on capital but free movement for labor? Yeah, I mean, I think you're kind of answering the question right there in a way in yes. the sense that, that I think that you're exactly right that this is the kind of conundrum that we're faced with. And I think that the the challenge is to not kind of default to the nation as the active category of politics in the sense of kind of, you know, the like the, le the Lexit position, the kind of left-wing Brexit position, which someone like Strake sort of implicitly supports, or the new kind of efforts at left-wing exclusionary populism in, in Germany, for example. So I do talk about in the book that this, how this emerges, this, um, the dropping out of free labor mobility as kind of one of the central principles for the neoliberals I write about. So these particular characters, Hayek and Mises and company, I mean, they do begin, they do, do begin with a demand for full labor mobility as well. I mean, that's very important for, for Mises. They give it up provisionally in the 1930s and 1940s in wartime because they're, they're writing big books, Road to Serfdom, Omnipotent Government for Mises. And there they say, as far as our vision goes, it's not realistic to ask for open borders for migration right now because America sh is not going to let in Germans and Japanese in wartime. And then Mises sort of inserts a footnote or, that is often quoted now by right-wing libertarians. And there is no white man who wouldn't shudder at the, the, the vision of millions of black or yellow people amongst him now or something like that. So they kind of say, you know, it's the, it's the political, geopolitical problems and cultural problems that unfortunately are obstacles to you know, the realization of perfect border-free capitalism as we might want to imagine it. This changes over time. So what becomes a kind of a provisional, um, you know, carve-out of the, of the neoliberal vision ends up becoming a central part of it. So Hayek in the late 1970s famously comes out with a series of articles in which he defends Thatcher's immigration policy. And he says it's, she's actually doing the right thing by blocking the... Um, the, the continuing migration of people of non-white people from the Commonwealth countries into the UK because it's undermining social order and people need certain morals effectively to be good market citizens. So now 
um, barriers on migration, obstacles to migration, is no longer just a kind of a wartime provisional part of the neoliberal imaginary, but it's becoming like a central constitutive part of the neoliberal imaginary. And that's really where you get parties like the Alternative for Germany Party or the Austrian Freedom Party, which are totally neoliberal in their in their financial and trade positions and then totally restrictive and exclusionary in their in their migration positions you do literally get some of these people saying we can do it because hayek said we could right i mean i have i have you know the 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 writings of some of the people like in their more in their more edu edu well educated kind of circles making these kind of arguments arguing for the consistency of it so i think the 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 answer to that is just is is was what you say, which is, is um, you know, push back against that, like deny the idea that international national is really a meaningful division in the era of financialization. Um, you know, understand more how flows within our countries are also affecting inequality. Well, I think that you know, it's Europe is a good example, right? I mean, and Strake is a good example. There was a there was been leftist critiques of the European Union. Um, someone here has written a couple of them um, over the last decade or so, right? Which is basically saying that kind of free capital mobility and certain kinds of um, and certain kinds of free trade positions are kind of locked in to the EU, and it's designed to kind of make. Uh, to depoliticize certain decisions that could be made at the level of democratic government through things like the European Commission and the European Court of Justice, which can overrule individual nation states to cut state subsidies to national champions or state-owned services of different kinds. Right, That's been an argument. But there was also at the same time an argument coming from the further neoliberal right, which is like, no, Europe is not the solution. Europe is the problem. And we need to get out of Europe because Europe is a transfer union and it's going to turn into this social Europe and welfare is going to become continentalized and stuff, right? They want to go even further away from, right? So, I mean, and this is the logic behind the Brexit campaign as it comes from certain the neoliberal wings of the Tories, right? Um, so that doesn't mean that now we need to all become Europhiles, but it does, it does mean that we need to have as sort of agile of a sense of political possibility as they do in the sense that knowing that, that the, the political content of different formations is not determined in advance and is always open for pressure and open for transformation, right? I mean, anyone who sort of says, who sort of says, like, but that's impossible, how can we imagine it, you know, just needs to think about what it meant to drop borders inside the entire Schengen area in Europe. I mean, what does it mean to drive a car past an abandoned border post between Italy and, and Switzerland? I mean, it's extraordinary, not Switzerland, but, you know, between Germany and Czech Republic. It's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary experiment. It happened without people even really thinking about it. Now we're trying to figure out what that means politically. But, you know, nothing is really impossible. So I think that being aware of the openness of institutions and is something that is really important for me as a historian I'm too. Sorry, to yeah. the three bites of the <laughs> uh, hi. Uh, so before this talk, I always thought about neoliberalism as free markets, personal liberty, et cetera, yeah. um, which is, I think, a perspective that lends itself well to thinking um, about economics in terms of the way we learn it in school here at Brown. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if this is a good question or not, but does reframing neoliberalism in terms of the global systemic institutional way that you reformulate it, does that change the way your representative neoliberal 
would look at the efficacy or the viability of standard economic theory? Um, can you rephrase the question? Like, you think that, yeah, can you ask that again? Yeah, so just, just um, changing the way we, or reformulating neoliberalism in this way, does that yeah. render, not monetary policy, but the standard economic theory of today, does it render it useless, or does it, because of all the entangling institutions and, and laws and whatnot, does that change the way we look at the viability of what we can do with economics? Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying now. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that it, I mean, because I wanted to kind of decouple neoliberalism as a category, which is indeed often used as a kind of a slur and a sort of a curse word, really, by, by the progressive left, to, and which is fine. But <laughs> to decouple that from the practice of economics as such does kind of intentionally kind of reclaim the progressive possibilities of the discipline of economics. That, so that doesn't sort of mean that economics is now the hero and neoliberalism is the villain, but it's just it's the, the amount of, in, of the lack of comprehension outside of economics departments about what the politics of economics is is actually quite extraordinary, right? I mean, the fact that most economics professors are indeed left of, of the center on the political spectrum and sees what they're doing as in the interest of, you know, distributional justice and some level of, you know, equality is not something that most people, I think, realize. And so I, I do kind of want to let economics a bit off the hook or at least not kind of blame it directly for um, the problems of the international order because I think that the arguments that have been made for creating the international trade architecture, for example, that we have today, have often been made in idioms that aren't really that close to the discipline of economics, actually, right? I mean, it's about, it's been about great power politics for sure, but then often through this idiom of basically a version of international law rather than a language of, you know, demand curves and, and economics per se. So yeah, I think it's sort of trying to be a bit more specific about what conversations the world order we're in now came out of and which ones they didn't. And I think we're just about at time. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Quinn for a fantastic conversation, an even better book, and uh, we have a reception outside. You can all eat for free. That's not markets, that's something else. Let's <laughs> go with it. Thank you. Next week, Rick Perlstein is coming, another Fabi historian, so please come again. See you then.